Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. With me today is Sam Harris, one of the youngest survivors of the concentration camps during the Holocaust. Sam played a central role in the building of the 65,000-square-foot Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center, of which he is President Emeritus. In 2014, he received the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. I first had the privilege of interviewing Sam 19 years ago as the religion reporter at the Chicago Tribune. In fact, Rick Hershout, now my AJC colleague in Los Angeles, introduced us. The Illinois Holocaust Museum had not even broken ground yet, but Rick and others were putting out a call to the Chicago area community for artifacts, ordinary items that survivors might have held on to since miraculously escaping the Nazi extermination of one-third of the Jewish people tangible reminders of that horror. Sam donated a cracked brown leather belt with a tarnished buckle taped to the end. He is with us now to share the story behind the heroism that saved him, why the existence of Israel matters, and what he hopes his testimony today and reminders like that belt will inspire for years to come. Sam, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you were just four years old when the Nazis occupied Poland, and you, your parents, your seven siblings were forced to live in a ghetto. Could you please share what you know of your family's life before that and what happened to them? Sure. I have very distinct memories of those days. They were very pleasant. I was the youngest of seven children, and I think I was spoiled Life was good. My father was a a scribe, a soifer in Hebrew. He wrote the Torah. I remember standing at his side as he dipped his feathered ink pen and wrote each little letter sat by a window. We went to the mikvah together. He and I were very close. I was the youngest of seven. Seven, I guess, if it's particularly if it's a boy, was very good. Seven days in a week, creation of the world, seven. It's a very important day. So that was me. And on the weekends, every Friday night, in the afternoon, we would go by horse and buggy to my grandparents in a nearby little town, Cholna, a little dwarf, they called it, my Grandparents had a little farm, and my grandmother would bake challah, and my grandfather would have a little pony for me to ride. Life was beautiful until September. We were having lunch, and I heard noises in the sky, in the German Luftwaffe were coming to destroy the airfield. See, the Polish Air Force got its training in my town of Demblin. So the Nazis came to destroy the Polish Air Force. I remember they were circling each other, chasing each other in the air. They didn't have jets, of course. And I could see planes being shot down. That was my first memory of what, uh, that was in September 1939. That was the first time I knew of the war. Of course, those same airplanes, a few days later, They came and they were shooting at people. And I could see people dying 
that we were all running toward another little town. We didn't know where to go. But that's the first time I saw the war came to me. Then, of course, it got worse. The Nazis came to our town with tanks, machine guns. They were whipping through town. Our little house was shaking as those trucks and everything went through. And then later on, the Nazis came. They started marching. A lot of soldiers marching and singing. Then they broke up and they started coming into the town. And I remember the first time they beat up a Jew. He was with a long beard. I remember a Nazi taking the butt of his gun, hitting him in the head, and he was bleeding. And and I saw this as a child. Then it got worse. I remember they came to our house. They grabbed my father, and they marched him outside, and they just went into the woods. My brother David followed them, hiding. There was four of them, four Nazis. They came, and they got branches from the tree, and they started beating my father till he passed out. My brother David was hiding. There was nothing he could do but cry. But the Nazis eventually left him in the woods, and uh, David took him home. I remember him coming, and my father was leaning on him. And uh, my father was laid down on the bed. They took off his shirt, and he was cut up all over the place. It was really sad. So that's the very first thing I remember. I also remember that they lined up men to go to work every morning. Guess what? At the end of the day, they didn't all come back. And this continued. Of course, then there was, they made a ghetto out of our town. And you couldn't leave. You got to get food. You can't get food. One time, my sister Rosa snuck out, and they caught her. She was shaking when she came back. They didn't kill her. She talked her way out of it. Because, you know, if they saw you, they would shoot you if you snuck out. So ultimately what happened, people were dying of hunger. They were laying on the street, dying, no food. Those are some of the things that happened. And then it really got bad. The Nazis came. They used the Jews to work in that little air force I was telling you about where the Polish got training. But then the Nazis needed Jews to be slaves there. My sister Rosa went to work there, and she came back with a little food for the family. But one day, the Nazis came with a bunch of trucks. And out of the back of the trucks, all these soldiers came out. They had guns and bayonets, and they came yelling and screaming to each house, and they forced all the Jews to go to the marketplace. The place was crowded. If somebody didn't go fast enough, they would stab him or shoot him. We had 800 deaths just right then. I learned the number at the Yad Vashem, that, that number's down. There were 800 deaths that were killed in Demblin that day. And I was in that line. That line gathered the Jews to go into the cattle cars, which were nearby. And I was in the line. I was small, so they hid me in the middle. And all I could see was legs and sky. Eventually, I don't know what happened, but my father pushed me out of the line and said, go over there. There were some bricks nearby, and my sister Sarah was already there. And I was running. I heard shooting in the background. I don't know if they were shooting at me. Probably not. And 
Sarah was there hiding and we kind of crouched and we saw the big line of maybe a thousand or two thousand people going in the direction of the train and there was crying and yelling and they kept going and in that line was you know, my parents brothers sisters cousins neighbors friends they all went into the cattle cars and that's the last time i saw them all sarah and i were left alone rosa was working in the field so she wasn't shot it was her duty then to take care of us two little kids sarah's two years older than i and that was the responsibility of rosa she shared her food she was hiding us she was a real hero without her i wouldn't have lasted a day neither would sarah sarah rosa is the one and she continued to do that throughout liberation that was her she she had not too many people that were able to do that rosa died about eight ten years ago so Rosa came back from where she was working and the two of us were there and she brought us food, whatever she could and shared it with us. And we continued to see people starving until the Nazis came another time because not all the Jews were left taken. I want to make sure we're punctuating this with time elements, Sam. This was in 1942 when the ghetto of Dublin was liquidated, correct? Right. Okay. So Rosa is hiding you and Sarah. They came to get us again. They called it Auszüdlung. And uh, Rosa was there. There was shooting in the background. We started to run. We ran on the fields. There's the farms all around our town. And in the distance, the three of us, by the way, I was still young, but I could feel I could run faster and jump higher. I just we were running for our lives. So we didn't know what to do. And there was a farmhouse and outside there was an outhouse. So we opened the door and we were in the outhouse and we were there and we heard shooting in the background. And pretty soon the farmer opened the door and kicked us out of there. We didn't know what to do. So we continued running. And to the left, I saw soldiers searching. And we kept going until Rosa saw another farm, a barn. And in that barn that was on the top, there was a board missing with a little shed below that. So we climbed the shed. She pushed me up so I could climb through that opening in that barn. I landed on the other side and I landed on some straw. And then I was followed by Sarah, then Rosa. We covered ourselves. And we heard yelling all the time. And finally, the door was opened to that barn and they kept yelling, you there, Rouse, you there, Rouse, Jews come out. Boy, we were buried under that straw. We weren't breathing. We were scared and we lay there. They looked and looked. They couldn't find us. We stayed there until the evening. We went back through the same opening and we went home. And nearby, the neighbors, I saw a big pile. I said, I want to go see it. Rosa said, don't, let's go to sleep. You'll see it tomorrow. Well, the next day, we went to see it. That pile was all of our neighbors, a lot of our neighbors. They were shot, piled up. And so we were kind of looking around, seeing if we knew anybody. But as we were looking, 
we noticed a little child moving. The mother must have fallen on the child to save it. I remember the face was covered with blood and all of that. And I went away. I couldn't, I didn't see the rest of it. I don't know what happened to that child. And that's the way it went. There was nothing but life, hunger, starvation. And the whole purpose, as you know, was for them to get rid of all the Jews. The image of these children, of you as a child and your sisters confronting this horror, how old were you and your sisters at this time? You remember the ghetto, certain things, I can't give you dates, but at this point I was probably five and a half, maybe six. You know, time has elapsed from the time Hitler got there. So I was at five and a half or six, I'm taking a guess in terms. And do you know what happened to your family? You said that was the last time you saw your parents and your siblings when they went to the train. Do you know what happened to them? To the best of our knowledge, those trains all went to Treblinka. And in Treblinka, as you know, they were gassed and burned. They, for some reason, didn't go to Treblinka. They went to Sobibor, but most likely Treblinka. Sobibor had just opened. So those were two places where they, you know, gassed the juice and burned them. So I would say our parents and everybody went to Treblinka. I went to visit it later, and I looked at those ovens and said I could have been there. And, you know, it's that strange feeling, terrible to see all the ashes. It's unbelievable that human beings could do this to human beings. Yet it happened, and it happened to me, and I made it. So what happened is Rosa snuck us into the concentration camp, Sarah and me, because there was no place to go. A labor camp. Right? Not a death camp, but a labor camp. It was a labor camp where the job of the people there was to work on the airport. The airport was used by the Germans to go to Russia. I don't know where, but there was an airport. They needed Jews. And every once in a while, they'd come and pick up 100 Jews to be killed, and the new ones would be brought in who were stronger and healthier. And Rosa was there, and she shared whatever little food she had. What was it? The food was maybe a piece of bread, mostly straw. There was soup. I remember the soup was made out of horse meat. You were lucky to get a little bit of horse meat. Oh, we were skinny and hungry and all of that. And I didn't go to work because I had, was hiding. Because what does a little kid do? Can't go to work. They see a kid, they shoot him. So I was there with a few other children, and we were hiding, and somebody ran away. The local people would find him and report him, or the Nazis would go to the woods with their dogs and find the Jews. And then what they would do is they would hang them between the barracks and the outhouse so the Jews could see them. Hey, if you run away, that's what will happen to you. It flees and lies. So we stayed in that camp until the Russians came close. They came to Warsaw, and then the Nazis decided, what do we do with all these Jews? We have to close this camp. So they put us into cattle cars. There were so many that the first group, I think there were about 20 children in this camp hiding. And about 15 of them went on the first transport. They were all shot. They went to Częstochowa. Why Częstochowa? Częstochowa, they were making bullets for the front. And they needed more laborers. So they took the people from our Demblin, put them in cattle cars, and went there. 
Now, the first group that went, that took all the kids that went off the train to the woods, they shot him. I was in the second transport. There were five of us, just five of us. Boy, the train trip was terrible, absolutely terrible. No food, no toilets, nothing. I could talk about this for a long time, but I'm really anxious to tell you about what happened when we got there. The doors yanked open, the cattle cars. I got off. And there were dogs with Nazis holding them, and they had guns, and they had whips, and I was coming down. They saw me. Rosa was holding me with her left hand, and they saw me. So they pulled me away. I wouldn't go. Rosa was cried. Eventually, they obviously succeeded. They pulled me away. The guy kicked me in my chest, and I still remember like I say, I, I didn't feel the pain. I remember there was a long boot coming at me. And then I was held in a separate room with four other children to be taken the next day to be shot like all the other kids. But an unusual thing happened. I think I'll tell you what happened. In the Demblin camp, there was a Jew who was recognized by a soldier. The two of them were in World War I in the Austrian army. The Jew named Venkart, Herman Venkart, saved this man. He was wounded in the battle. Venkart ran down and threw him on his back and saved his life. Now they see each other. Braufmann was the name of the German fellow, the Nazi, who happened to notice him. He says, you'll be ready tomorrow. I want to introduce you to the SS people. Tell them what a brave Jew you are. Saved my life. So he did. They all got along and they made him head of the whole concentration camp because of that. Now, Venkar, that guy, had a daughter my age. So when we went off to Czechoslovakia concentration camp, he wrote a letter, save this brave man who saved my life, his daughter. Well, when the German, the, the Nazi there, terrible guy, saw this letter, yeah, forget it, to what I, you know. He was not going to listen to save this guy's child. And then the Jew kept saying, how can you not listen to? I don't know. They went back and forth. Finally, the Barton Schlager said, deine bleibt, which means your stays. And Bankart says, alle oder keine, save all five or nine. And the guy said, okay. I don't know what got into him. He said, okay, but if I ever see them, I'll shoot them. So we had to hide under beds and all that. Anyway, what happened was this. They decided to let us in, and they opened up the gates. And as we were approaching the gates, the gates were made out of barbed wire. The Jews were leaning. The whole area was blocked off with barbed wire. 200 Jews or so were leaning on the barbed wire, seeing these skinny little kids come in that direction. They hadn't seen a child in years. Their children are gone, and here five skinny little kids are coming. And I'll never forget this. The door opened up. I was grabbed, hugged, kissed, taken from one hand to the other high above, passed from one hand to the other. I think I felt that that time and even today as though I was a Torah being passed on Simcha's Torah. And it is that memory, that memory to this day, that I sort of made a promise to myself later on that I will dedicate my life to sharing my story with people because I made it. And a million and a half Jewish children 
they didn't. So that's why I tell the story so often whenever I'm asked. That is a, a beautiful, horrific story full of just amazing miracles and just circumstances. It illustrates just the randomness of circumstances that led to you living today and surviving. It's just amazing. In addition to the heroism of your sister, Rosa, and it's just really remarkable, really remarkable. I can't even believe it when I look back. You know, it didn't all end right there. We stayed there and we finally were liberated by the Russian army. It was January 17th. I celebrated January 17th, 1945. And uh, we were lucky to be liberated. We were all lined up to be taken to Auschwitz or to March. It was a very cold winter. But I read it in a book. I went to the library and I saw day by day World War II. And I learned that a guy, Konyev, a Russian general, Konyev, who was trying to make a mark for himself with Stalin, he decided to move on faster, faster than Zhukov. Zhukov was the other general. He was the number one general. And so he went, Konyev went faster than he was supposed to. So he came to our concentration camp. We were not too far from Auschwitz. We were liberated before Auschwitz. January 17th, Auschwitz was liberated January 27th. A rare example of ego saving the day. I learned it later by reading it. And, and luck again. And, 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 and I didn't go on the death march and I didn't go on the train. And I still remember the Nazis getting off of the wall and the Russians coming in early in the morning, and the Nazis are running away. The Jews are going in the kitchen. They brought me a big piece of butter from the kitchen. It must have been the size of a football. At least it seemed that way to me. They gave it to me, and I ate the whole thing. Boy, did I get sick. And then we left at about 5 a.m. A whole group of us from my town said, well, let's go home. So we opened the gate and there was silence, and then we heard voices. And some Jews said, let's go back. We heard it. It was the Russians, and they were approaching us in the dark. And they started to speak Russian. There were some Jews, and they said, get behind us. And first I saw one Russian with the machine gun, and five and ten, and we were behind, and we kept going. And we saw dead people along the way. It was a front. And then we saw their tanks, and it was cold, and I didn't even have shoes. I had rags on my feet with strings around it. It was one of the coldest winters in, in Europe. So we kept going, and, and then I, as we kept going the next day, I was, I guess, still a kid. I remember getting on top of a tank, a rune tank, and pretending to play. And um, we we worked our way through to go home, a whole group of us, along the way, there was shooting drunk Russians and so on. And uh, we got there, and we were not welcome. The people said, what? Why aren't you dead yet? You're supposed to be dead. We were chased out. We, had, we left the next day. We were left the next day. Liberation was an ordeal in and of itself. Um, I've, I've heard from many survivors, and it sounds like it was, that was the case for you as well. 
How did you make it to the United States? Well, I'll tell you quickly. My sister Rosa was married to a Viennese Jew. She decided to go home to Vienna with him to see if there was anybody there. She dropped us off in Lublin, where other orphans were in Lublin. And uh, I was with other orphans. We were all skinny. They gave us all these pills to eat, to, to get you know, a little food. And we were there. And she promised to come back someday. And that's what happened. I stayed in that orphanage with Sarah. And I don't know how long later she had made some money. I, don't, I guess she was selling cigarettes or something. And she came back with a truck with two Russians they were driving. In the truck, they, they were hauling oil cans, big oil cans in the truck to, to, to Austria. So right in the middle of the truck, they took out two barrels, and Sarah and I were hiding there as we went through uh, Czechoslovakia and all of this and stayed in farms. And uh, finally, we ended up in Vienna. And in Vienna, uh, I was placed in second grade. I, I had to learn German, stayed there till, when I was liberated, I was nine and a half. Okay. Uh, by the time I was to Vienna, I must have been 10, 10 and a half, stayed there until I was 12. Rosa just had a little child, boy. And she thought it would be best because they were always looking for children's survivors. And she thought it would be better for us to go to Israel or the United States. So uh, that's what she did. She put us in contact with people and they were taking us. Uh, well, I guess to Israel, but I guess we missed the ship. Uh, I learned I, I recently that I was supposed to end up on on the exodus at Bremerhaven to go to Israel, but I, I missed it with Sarah and ended up in the United States through the organization of rehab, the American reorganization of European children finally got us and put us, I guess Mrs. Roosevelt organized it. And we ended up in the, in, in the United States. That kind of answers your question. But we continued on the ship and uh, went, ended up in uh, New York for two weeks. Then they shipped us by train, must be the highest, to Chicago, where the Jewish JUF took over. And I uh, lived in a, in a uh, not an orphanage, a foster home with my sister Sarah. And they were looking for people that would adopt two, two kids. Nobody wanted to adopt two kids from concentration camps. So they came, they asked my sister, is it okay to my sister Sarah? She was older, so she, she kind of took care of me. And the, the agency decided to split us up. So my sister Sarah was adopted by a family in Chicago. And I was adopted. Our name was Zhezhnyek uh, before we came to the United States. I was adopted by a family 
in, in Northbrook, Illinois. My father was a doctor, and uh, my mother was a teacher, and their name was Harris. So I became Harris, and that that happened in 1948, uh, April 10th, 1948. My name was changed, and I lived in Northbrook, and I always wanted to be an American boy. And I told my parents I didn't want to talk about it, to throw everything away, and that's it. So, in fact, the name of your ship to the United States was the Ernie Pyle, right? And it was it was the same ship. Uh, the mother of Howard Reich was also on that ship, and Howard is another former colleague of mine at the Chicago Tribune. In fact, we interviewed him on this podcast last year about his time with Elie Wiesel, and I encourage listeners to find that episode and listen. So you and Sarah were separated. Did you stay in touch? And were the families that adopted you both Jewish? Yes, both families were Jewish, and we stayed in contact. Uh, But I had a new life. And I was busy playing football and baseball and learning the language. You know, struggled. It's not easy to be parted from your sister and another sister, a new life, a new world. I look back. How the heck did I do it? You know, I don't know. But um, I look at it now from a different point of view. This is the little child. See, I thought I was an ugly little child walking around with ripped pants, hungry. And you know who straightened me out? My wife, Dee Dee. She was going to, she's getting her master's degree in sociology at the University of Chicago. One day she comes home. She was studying about all this stuff. She says, let's talk about this little boy. I said, yeah, he was, you know, poor an orphan and all these. She said, let's talk about him. We were sitting around, we had a fire in the fireplace. Yeah, she says, was uh, he a hero? Didn't he survive the worst of all? She'd gone throwing all these stories at me. And she put the little boy and the man together. She straightened me out where I didn't think this little boy was ugly orphaned. He was a hero. She did that for me. Wow, that's amazing. Um, the resilience that you demonstrated through all of this is really, really remarkable. I was always lucky to have a sister who was dynamic, you know, a wife now 61 years, who's very smart. Uh, she, you know, she, she, and, and she was interested, you know, she spent some time with uh, Anne Frank's father. She met him and she tells stories about that. So, you know, and then and somebody fixed us up on a date a long time ago, and they, we were married ever since. So you didn't really share your testimony widely until a trip to Jerusalem in 1981. Can you talk a little about the world gathering of Jewish Holocaust survivors um, in Jerusalem that year, and, and what moved you to become more outspoken? Okay, I, I really didn't want to go. It was going to be with, I, I, did, I wasn't in contact with survivors. I told you I wanted to be an American boy. But Dee, my wife, persuaded us to go. So we took our children. We went there. We waited for a, uh, the meetings were all over Jerusalem. And we were taking taxis and buses. So the children, Dee and I, were, took a taxi because it took forever to get one. 
And we asked another couple to join us. And they started asking, where are you from? And isn't that? Turns out they were from Auschwitz. But before that, they were in my concentration camp in Chestachova. And the man started to cry. And he said to the children who were way in the back, you don't know how lucky your father is to be here today. And Didi said, well, what do you mean? He says, you know, there were others from that camp, and my job was to take him by truck and deliver him to the Nazis, and they would shoot him in the woods, and, and I was supposed to take them next when they came. And that's why, you remember I told you there was a story there, there that was part of it, and that somehow put us together. So anyway, that's, that's really our kids got to know the real thing. That it really, that I was really there and it really happened. Didi, of course, knew it all. But the first time the kids saw all of the things that were happening with all the survivors, the survivors, there were six, there were 6,000 survivors from all over the world. It was the 36th anniversary of liberation of Auschwitz. And that's why we were there. Ernie Michel, a guy from New York who was an influence on me, uh, he, he he helped organize it. And uh, it was a beautiful thing to all be together, to speak. And Bagan was there, and he spoke, and uh, Ellie Wiesel. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful to know we had a homeland, a place to go to, that this would never happen again. Bagan uh, promised us that. Well, I, I wanted to ask you, you said that that gentleman talked to your children in the back and you know, told them how fortunate you were. Had you shared much with your children at that point? At that point, no. Like I say, our daughter read, I used to write down part of it. It's in my book now. Every time I thought of something, I wrote down a story. And I would give it a title, Hide, if only my belt could speak, or hiding high in the heat when I was hiding from the Nazis and so on. And eventually that book became Sammy Child Survivor of the Holocaust, which, by the way, is now in eight languages. And it's that book talks about what experience I, it talks it from a child point of view, so it's used all over the place. And my kids could see the story, and they would show sometimes to Sunday school. But we never really sat down to talk about it. They learned it from others. Was that reluctance more on your part or on their part? I mean, were they curious? Did they ask questions or not necessarily? Probably did. Not they didn't ask me too many questions. Uh, I think my daughter particularly he didn't want to face the fact that I suffered so much. And our son, David, was a few years younger. Every time there was a movie on TV, he was there with Nazis with a little gun shooting at them. So we, we, I didn't really want to talk about it in, the, in those days. Uh, eventually, I had to. When I was about 55 and there was a march on Skokie, and... Uh, the rabbi, Rabbi Willie Frankel, came to me. He said, Sam, there's a book written by a Northwestern professor, the hoax of the 20th century, a guy by the name of Butts. 
he said the Holocaust didn't happen. So he made, he got to me and interviewed me and he showed it and the movies to other rabbis and other temples. That was really the first time I spoke publicly. And of course, you're talking about a march in a Chicago suburb called Skokie of neo-Nazis, when neo-Nazis marched through the town. It was the time where I started to have to start talking. A rabbi told me, other friends told me. So I became very active. And to get you back to the thing, to, to your, uh, how you and I met, I had joined the Holocaust Foundation at the time. And I was with other survivors. And I saw we didn't have much of a museum, 4,000, 5,000 square feet. It was due to the march that they felt they should educate people what the Holocaust was. So I volunteered to build a new museum, the one that you talked about in Skokie, 65,000 square feet. And we had, I got, uh, I got uh, uh, Ritzker to help me. There were so many. Every doctor wanted to be part of the museum. It's a wonderful institution, and I, I certainly encourage people, if they're visiting the Chicago area, to, to visit that museum. Sam, you have been so generous with your time and your wisdom, and I know your testimony is not easy to share. And so thank you so very much for sharing it with our audience. It's such an honor to talk to you again, such a privilege to, to be able to do it uh, multiple times over such a long period of time. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.